Good morning, brothers and sisters. Great to worship with you this morning. Great to see your faces today. Let us move with haste to the Word of God. If you've got your Bible with you, would you open to the book of Micah chapter 7, please? And if you don't have your Bible with you, maybe you're new with us, new to the Bible, uh, let me encourage you to use one of those black pew Bibles, and I'll give you a shortcut. You'll find our passage on page 827 uh, in that pew Bible. Micah chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 7 is where we're going to spend our time together uh, this morning. Uh, what do you suppose a written job description for a prophet looks like? What would you expect to see among the bullet points on that job description? Must have wide eyes and bushy hair, maybe? It's bushy. Uh, must predict the future. Must be socially awkward. Must own a bullhorn. I mean, what do you think about when you think about a prophet? We, we often think about people who live on the fringes of acceptable society. We have this cartoonish impression of what a modern-day prophet might be like. And that's too bad because the world needs more prophets. The world doesn't need the strange, cartoony prophets of our imaginations. The world needs Christians who have prophetic eyes, who see the world as it truly is. And this world needs Christians who have prophetic tears. We mourn over the state of the world around us. The world needs Christians with a prophetic voice, those who will warn of the judgment of God on sin and speak the hope of salvation through faith in Christ. This world needs Christians with a prophetic heart, deep compassion for those who are far from God. This world needs you to have a prophet's faith. And have you ever thought about yourself in this way? Have you ever thought about yourself as a prophet? Maybe not. You might have thought of yourself as an evangelist or as a discipler. But I don't know that many people that I've ever met in my life who would say, I've got a prophetic type of faith. I've met some of that in some less biblically constrained uh, churches and expressions of Christianity. But for those who walk with Christ by His Word, we don't always like to talk about thoughts about being prophets. You might be more prophetic than you realize. Let me give you a, a quick little self-examination uh, have you ever grieved over the state of our world? Uh, have you ever been concerned about the institution of the family? Uh, have you ever felt alone as a follower of Jesus Christ? Uh, have you ever been angry at injustice and sin in the world? Have you ever had a glimmer of hope that God's going to set everything right one day? If you answer yes to those questions, you have a prophet's heart in you already. I'm not trying to lower the status of prophet to just this very simple common denominator. These are real markers of people who have a prophet's type of heart. 
And it seems natural to me that as we've spent a lot of time with Micah over these last few weeks, that our hearts might be shaped to be a bit more like his, that we might take on a prophetic ministry, a prophetic life, much like that of Micah. Because all the things that we've described, sadness over sin, a feeling of isolation, uh, anger at injustice, these are things that we find in Micah. In our passage we're studying today, he speaks specifically to these things and more. All these issues that hurt him, that grieve him, that cause him to lament, and ultimately that lead him to a place of hope in God who's going to set everything right. I want us to be like Micah. My goal today is to equip you to live a prophetic life. And in Micah chapter 7, verses 1 to 7, Micah gives us two characteristics of a prophetic life. Here's our context before we read. We just finished chapter 6 last week. You remember chapter 6 was this really deep courtroom drama. That scene has come to a close. Now we pivot to a new scene in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is the last chapter of the book of Micah, so we're in the home stretch, and here we are turning towards hope and grace and mercy from God. But before we get there, we've got to wade through six verses of great difficulty as Micah reflects on what he sees in the world around him. So what does a prophetic life look like? Micah gives us some insights here. Follow along with me as I read Micah chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. How sad for me, for I'm like one who when the summer fruit has been gathered after the gleaning of the grape harvest, finds no grape cluster to eat, no early fig which I crave. Faithful people have vanished from the land. There's no one upright among the people. All of them wait in ambush to shed blood. They hunt each other with a net. Both hands are good at accomplishing evil. The official and the judge demand a bribe. When the powerful man communicates his evil desire, they plot it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is worse than a hedge of thorns. The day of your watchman, the day of your punishment is coming. At this time, their panic is here. Do not rely on a friend. Don't trust in a close companion. Seal your mouth from the woman who lies in your arms. Surely a son considers his father a fool. A daughter opposes her mother, and a daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. This passage has a, uh, a really helpful structure to it. I, I, I want you to see it because it shapes our study of the passage this morning. Uh, verses 1 to 7 break down into two really clear paragraphs. You've got verses 1 to 4 are the first paragraph, 5 to 7 are the second paragraph. Uh, those paragraphs both contain statements of the impact of sin. First is the impact of sin on society in verses 1 to 4, and then the impact of sin on the family in verses 5 and 6. Each of those two paragraphs ends with a statement of prophetic ministry or work. Uh, or hope. And so uh, verses 1 to 4, there's ruin in society, and that ends with a statement about the watchman. The day of your watchman is, is here. Watchman is a metaphorical description of prophets. So the day that the prophets have told you about is upon us. 
So end of verse 4, here's societal ruin. The day of the prophets is here. 5 and 6, here's sin in the family. And then verse 7, this final statement from the prophet of his hope in God who's going to set everything right. Those are our two paragraphs. Sin, prophet. Sin, prophet. These two paragraphs help us understand what a prophetic life looks like. What's it going to be if you are going to live your life intentionally to reflect Micah's ministry, to reflect Christ's ministry? What will your prophetic life look like? Two things. First of all is this, in the face of societal ruin, we warn of God's judgment. If you and I are going to live this prophetic life, the first thing it's going to look like is in the face of societal ruin, we warn people of God's coming judgment. So again, first paragraph, we have a description of the impact of sin on society. The closing line of that paragraph is a warning about God's coming judgment. So let's look first at the state of affairs in Micah's world. Micah begins verse 1 with a lament. He says, how sad for me, or woe is me. He mourns for the way things are in his world, just as he did way back in chapter 1. You might remember that when we began our study in Micah, chapter 1, he describes his grief over sin in the world around him in these animalistic terms. It's an intense grief that he feels. So from chapter 1 and now in chapter 7, Micah is a man who laments regularly the impact of sin on society around him. And he explains this morning with a word picture. He says, I'm like one who, when the summer fruit has been gathered after the gleaning of the grape harvest, finds no grape cluster to eat, no early fig which I crave. But Micah's issue here is not with missing fruit, right? That's not really what he's missing. What he's missing are righteous people, faithful people. And so he gives us this word picture to help us remember what it's like to crave something and for it to be missing. I, I'm a big fan of seasonal foods and flavors. You might be also. I mean, I, I love a good pumpkin spice latte. I don't care how basic it is. I love it in October. And uh, Christmas time, I like peppermint-flavored things. But number one on my list of seasonal foods, I love summer watermelon. That's what does it for me. And I don't know if you know how to eat your watermelon properly. It must be salted. Watermelon, don't ooh me. <laughs> Look, take the seltzer water out of your own eye and then come talk to me. <laughs> you salt the watermelon. If you want to kick it up levels unknown, then you get some tahine. It's this, it's a Latin uh, spice flavoring. Tahine your watermelon. Oh, man, it... It'll set you free. It's fantastic. <laughs> and so, like, can you imagine a, a hot summer day and, and you're ready for something refreshing? It's the season for watermelon, and you go to the market, you go to the store. There's none to be found. There's an abundance of cantaloupes, but who wants to eat cantaloupe out of a fruit salad? It just, I mean, who wants that? We want watermelon. And so, uh, Micah tries to help us understand this. What it's like to have this craving that's not satisfied. Micah craves righteous people. He, he says faithful people are missing from the land. That word faithful uh, in verse 2, it's the same word used in Micah 6, 8. Love faithfulness or love mercy. What does God require of you? Act justly. Love faithfulness. That faithfulness word, he's missing 
faithful people from the land. They're nowhere to be found. He has this craving, and it just can't be satisfied. Micah says there's no one upright among the people. All of them wait in ambush to shed blood. They hunt each other with a net. So he describes people whose sin is intentional. It's violent. It's treacherous. There's a bit of hyperbole here for sure. Micah is not saying that he alone is the last remaining covenant faithful believer uh, with the Lord. There are others around him. And you have to remember that he's not even the only prophet on the scene at this time. Isaiah is his contemporary. Isaiah is located in the capital city in Jerusalem. Micah is out in a more rural area. So he's not saying he's the last one standing, but he's saying it's so few. He feels so isolated, so alone. Rather than being surrounded by people who love the Lord, he's surrounded by people who love sin, who love violence. He describes it more intensely in verses 3 and 4. He says, both hands are good at accomplishing evil. The official and the judge demand a bribe. When a powerful man communicates his evil desire, they plot it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is worse than a hedge of thorns. Both hands are good at accomplishing evil. If you have a different translation, it might say both hands are equally skilled at doing evil. This communicates the eagerness with which they pursue sin and they plot their schemes for their own profit. They are ambidextrous in their sinful accomplishments. Powerful people coordinate together to commit this evil. And the best among them is like a hedge of thorns. In other words, they will rip you to shreds. Now, nothing that Micah has described in this passage was theoretical in his world. None of it's theoretical in our world either. It's as if Micah's describing the place we live. We have so many reasons to lament just like Micah. Look, we, we can't say we have an advantage. We can't say all, all righteous people have vanished from the land because even on this very day, we're surrounded by brothers and sisters who are gathering in the name of Jesus Christ. One, we have each other uh, but we also have brothers and sisters at Emmanuel Church in Weymouth and First Baptist Situate and Life Community in Braintree, Life Community in Quincy, um, at the Ark, which meets here in Hingham, uh, at New Hope in Norwell and New Hope in Plymouth and Mayflower Congregational and Brookville Bible Church. We have brothers and sisters gathering in the name of Christ all around the South Shore this morning. And that's an advantage we have that Micah did not enjoy. But still, we, we know the isolation of faith. Because outside of this gathering, we might be hard-pressed to find other people who walk with Jesus in the spheres of life we find ourselves in. You have the advantage of gathering together with brothers and sisters Sunday after Sunday, but have you ever thought about what it's like for your non-believing neighbors and friends? Where in their lives do they ever run into righteous people who walk with Jesus. I mean, can you imagine, for so many of them, their day-to-day -day lives are spent without any Christian influence at all. They don't see it. They don't experience it. They don't know what a Christian is like. Their day-to-day -day human experience is spent with people who are well-versed in evil and all kinds of treacherous sin. It can be an isolating thing to be a Christian in this place. 
the sin around us is pervasive, it's significant. What Micah described in terms of the corruption of powerful people lands right at home here and now as well. We may have to look hard to find other people who walk in righteousness. We don't have to look hard to find leaders in every sector of life whose hands are equally skilled at doing evil. With both hands they pursue power, with both hands they pervert truth, with both hands they rip to shreds the people they are supposed to serve. Brothers and sisters, sin is killing our nation. And our rescue will not come from Washington. We've got something to lament. And even so, you have a voice just like Micah did. And God has given you a message to deliver. And I want you to look at that message at the end of verse 4, the very last line of verse 4. Micah says this to the sinful world around him. He says, the day of your watchman, the day of your punishment is coming. At this time, their panic is here. So again, the word watchman, it's a poetic way of describing the prophets. These mouthpieces of God who warned of judgment to come and warned of of the difficult days ahead. And Micah says, look, the day of your watchman is here. So that day that the watchman warned about, it's upon us. The punishment is now. God will punish those who live in rebellion against him. He'll punish those who do violence. He'll punish those who are skilled at evil, those who take bribes, those who victimize the innocent. And Micah says, when that punishment arrives, it is time for panic. So in the face of societal ruin, Micah warned of God's judgment, and so must we. What would that look like for you and I to warn people of God's judgment? It's going to look like two things. First of all, it's going to look like a verbal warning. It's speaking to people about God's judgment on sin. If you're going to have gospel conversations with people, there must be a point at which you talk about the consequences of sin, the the punishment from which we need rescue. That's a warning, a gracious warning, a compassionate warning, but it is a warning nonetheless. When I say we have to warn people verbally, I don't necessarily mean we roam the streets of our towns screaming the end is near. What I mean is that in relationships built on trust, we tell people we love that this way of living is going to face serious, serious consequences. If you love people, you warn them. And this has to be a verbal warning. There's any number of places we could look in the New Testament where we see warnings given, warnings practiced over and over again in the New Testament. The ministry of the New Testament epistle writers and the apostles in the early church was a ministry of warning. There's one great example in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28, and it says this, Paul writes, we proclaim him, that's Jesus, he's describing his apostolic ministry. He says, we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So the New Testament church utilized warnings of God's judgment both in their evangelism, we proclaim him, and in their discipleship, we mature everybody. 
It's this warning about judgment that draws people to Christ and then molds people like Christ as well. This is not fear-based evangelism or fear-based discipleship. It is just sober thinking about the reality of God's judgment. And so this drove Paul's ministry and the ministry of the early church. For us to warn people of God's judgment, we have to be ready to speak about it. But there's a second way you might present God's judgment to the world around you, and that is through the example of your Christian life. Paul described it this way in Philippians chapter 2. He said this, he said, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Micah's world, crooked and perverted generation. Paul's world, crooked and perverted generation. Our world, the same. And how do we live? We live in line with the words of Christ. We live according to a Christian ethic so that by the pattern of our lives, people would see that we live different. We value different things. And so it might raise all kinds of questions from the people you're social with or you work with or you live around. Why do you choose not to get drunk every weekend with the rest of us? And why don't you sleep with every person you can? And why isn't your marriage a train wreck? And why do you live within your means? And why do you give sacrificially to people in need? Well, it's because when you live like Christ, you are shining like stars in a dark and crooked world. You're warning them of the danger of the dark and you're calling them to the light of Christ. A prophetic life requires this. It requires a word of judgment spoken or lived in the face of the ruin of society. If you're going to live a prophetic life in the face of societal ruin, we have to warn people of God's judgment. Micah gives us a second description of what the, poetic, or the prophetic life looks like, and it's this. It's that in the face of relational ruin, we look for the Lord's salvation. We've dealt first with societal ruin, and now it's relational ruin. He brings the focus home. In the first paragraph, he looked at the danger of sin out there. Here in the second paragraph, it's the danger of sin in here. And he gives us this vivid description of how sin decays relationships, but he closes with this final powerful word of hope. And so look at verse 5. Micah says, do not rely on a friend, don't trust in a close companion, seal your mouth from the woman who lies in your arms. So in this evil society, things have become so dangerous, you cannot trust those who are closest to you. And he articulates this by giving us uh, descriptions of broken relationships with increasing levels of intimacy. So the relationships in verse 5, it starts with a friend. And then it's your best friend, and then it's the woman in your arms. It's your wife. And don't rely more than that. Don't even trust more than that. Don't even speak because the situation is so full of danger from the pervasiveness of evil. It's corroding every relationship. Everything is broken. Everyone is an enemy of everyone. 
And in verse 6, he describes that relational collapse even more. He says, surely a son considers his father a fool. A daughter opposes her mother. And a daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Do you remember what the fifth commandment is? Honor your father and mother. What Micah has described is the violation of the fifth commandment as a way of life. More than that, it's expanded on. It's not just about the broken relationships between children and parents. It's every family relationship impacted by sin. It's a devastating scene that Micah's described. And did you know that Jesus quoted this verse as well in his ministry? He quoted Micah chapter 7, verse 6. You can find it in Matthew chapter 10. But when Jesus quoted verse 6, he quoted it in a different way. Micah has described the impact of sin in bringing division in family relationships. But Jesus said faithfulness to him would also bring division. His goal is not to break up families. His goal is to break our old allegiances. You cannot treat your spouse or your kids as your God and expect God to be okay with it. The people we love make for lousy gods. And so Jesus says, I have to be God alone. When he says, I've come to bring division, that's what he means. He's not breaking up families. He's breaking old allegiances. And he quotes Micah 7, 6 to help us understand this. And look, I know that many of you, you know what this is like. You have lived this. You are living this. Your allegiance to Christ has impacted relationships with family members who don't walk with Jesus. They don't understand And you do well to love them and to be compassionate and to be patient and take a long walk to the cross with them. You do well to maintain your relationship with them, your closeness, to love them, to be patient with them, to model faith, to not get exasperated, to not get into fights with them, but to love them the way Christ loved you patiently, gently, all the way to your salvation. You do well as you follow Christ to love your family supremely. Now, even though sin has impacted our homes in devastating ways, you have a voice just like Micah did. And God has given you a message to deliver. And I want you to look at that verse, or that, that message in verse 7. Micah says, but I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And Micah is a man of unbreakable hope. It doesn't matter how messed up things are. He does not let go of the promises of God. Micah says, but I will look to the Lord. The but I that starts in verse 7 is emphatic. His trust in the Lord doesn't depend on what anyone else is doing. It doesn't depend on the circumstances around him. His focus is on God. He will be God's man through and through no matter the situation. He says, but I will look to the Lord. So the source of Micah's hope is God and no one else. What if this line said, but I will look to the king? That's a hopeless statement. In every iteration of human government, a hopeless statement. What if he said, I'll look at the man in the mirror. What a hopeless way to fix your hair in the morning. But my hope comes from God. I will look 
to the Lord. Micah goes on to say, I will wait on the God of my salvation. Micah, how are we going to handle this? Society's in ruins. Family's in ruins. What are we going to do? I will wait on the God of my salvation. Oh, well, clearly you are unfit to lead us, Micah. What kind of strategy is waiting? It's not the time to wait. It's the time to go to war. It's time to fight. We've got to boycott something. We've got to denounce something. We've got to vilify someone. What good is waiting going to do, Micah? What a cowardly approach. Waiting is not indifference. Waiting is not cowardice. Waiting is not inactivity. But rather, it takes great faith to live our days trusting God's hand rather than trying to force God's hand. Micah says, I will wait on the God of my salvation. Salvation is certain because it depends on God, not on Micah. Salvation is certain because God has promised and he will bring it to fruition. Not because Micah rallies the troops. God's going to do what God has promised. I'll wait on the God of my salvation. And then Micah concludes with this line, my God will hear me. His faith rests in the assurance that God is attentive and active. All his hope rests on God, his Savior who hears him. Micah never panics. He laments. He mourns. But he never panics because his hope is in God no matter what. And if Micah was a man of hope, how much more should you be a person of hope? Knowing what you know of the coming of Christ, His death on the cross, His resurrection, and His ascension. The things that you know Micah only had whispers of. They were just shadows of promises extended to him. But you have seen them fulfilled. So how much more should you be a person of hope than Micah? There should be no comparison. You may have heard the news over the past few days uh, that pastor and writer Tim Keller has died and gone to be with the Lord. And uh, what an incredible ministry and incredible work uh, and incredible legacy that he leaves behind. And in the wake of his passing, there's been a, uh, an interview uh, that's been recirculated in which he was asked this question. This interview is just from a couple of years ago. He had just received a very serious diagnosis and uh, it was very serious. And so in this 30-minute conversation, he had talked about um, some of his fears, talked about confronting his own mortality and what that had been like. And the last question he was asked by the person interviewing him was, what would you say to a person who is afraid of the future? Uh, Tim answered thoughtfully and slowly, and he said this, if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, everything is going to be all right. If Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, everything is going to be all right. Oh, but our society. Oh, but our homes. But if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, everything's going to be all right. Do you believe that? You have to believe that. You better believe that. That Jesus Christ rose from the dead and every promise in him is true. And if Micah was a person of unbreakable hope, how much more should you be a person of relentless hopefulness with one eye on the world and another eye on the horizon because we're not long for this world. Another promise is sure to erupt in any moment 
when Christ returns for his bride, the church. And let me tell you, a hopeful person is a strange person in this world. Pessimism and cynicism rule people's lives, especially the lives of younger people today. But it should never be that way among people of faith, among people who belong to the resurrected Christ. You know that God keeps every promise. You know that Christ is coming again. You know that we will live in the new heavens and the new earth with new bodies. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and everything is going to be all right in your prophetic living. People have to see and hear that hope in you. Are you ready to live like a prophet? I hope so because this world needs prophetic people who in the face of societal ruin will warn of God's judgment. And this world needs prophetic people who in the face of relational ruin will look for God's salvation. That we can further simplify this passage just down to two words. Two words that describe the prophetic life. The prophetic life is holy and hopeful. It's holy in that you're living to honor God in your words and your actions. It's hopeful in that you are confident that God will keep his promise. The prophetic life is holy and hopeful. So I have to ask you, how are you living? Are you living holy and hopeful? Maybe not holy. And maybe not hopeful. Maybe broken and fearful. But Christian, if you will draw near to God, he will cleanse you of your sin. And he will restore hope to you as you find him again keeping his promises to you. And so I want to challenge you in this week ahead. I want you to strive for two goals in this week. One is I want you... I want you to strive to improve in some area of your holiness. Sit with the Lord in prayer, examine your heart, and ask Him, God, where can I be more your woman, more your man? Where can I separate myself from sin? And it may not take much digging to get there, to see the places where sin in your life is, is, it has a claim on you. And there, sitting with the Lord... Would you anchor yourself again in his promises? Would you ask him to help you in your holiness? And then the second goal is, I want you to increase in your hopefulness. What's the situation you're dreading? Where's the place where fear and panic are rising up? Let the promises of God feed your confidence and strengthen your hope in him. Holiness will require repentance. And the good news is that both of God's hands are equally skilled at forgiveness. And hopefulness will require faith. The good news is that both of God's hands are equally skilled at encouragement. Both of his hands are equally skilled at showing mercy. His hands are skilled at loving the loveless, at administering justice, at lifting the broken, at comforting the mourning, at welcoming you home. Likewise, both of his hands are equally skilled at crushing evil, at judging the judges, at humbling the prideful, at defeating Satan. He promised his people he would never forget them in Isaiah chapter 49, saying, See, I've engraved your names on the palms of my hands. And so, brothers and sisters, let holiness and hope characterize us as we hold out the light of Christ in this dark and crooked world. The world needs prophets. It needs you holy and hopeful.
What if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ? A lot of what Mike has talked about this morning might resonate with you. Have you ever looked at the world and just realized, man, there's something broken here? Yeah, you're seeing it right. You're feeling right that this world is broken. This is not the way that our God, the creator of all things, intended for stuff to be. Yeah, things are broken, but here's the harder realization. If the world I live in is broken and I'm a part of this world, I'm broken. I'm not just a victim of brokenness. I contribute to the brokenness. That's what you have to understand about Micah's message. That's what you have to hear about Jesus' message as well. We are the broken ones. Every one of us broken by sin. Every one of us, our relationship with God broken. It's it's a horrible thing for a child's relationship with a parent to be broken. It's a whole other thing for the created to have a broken relationship with their creator. And yet that's the reality of your sin, of all of our sin. It breaks our relationship with God. But here's how good God is. Here's how loving and compassionate He is. He knew knew who we would be. He knew what our brokenness would do to us and our inability to fix it. A broken person can't fix their broken selves any more than a broken car can fix itself or a broken phone can fix itself. Broken things don't fix what's broken, but rather your Creator, your God, who knows you and loves you, made a way for you. He's going to judge your sin, but He's made another way for that sin to be judged. So God the Father sent God the Son. This is Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. And He is God's one and only perfect sacrifice for your sin because He had no sin. He never sinned. Never broken. Nothing in his life that's broken or human or or messed up like we are. But rather a life of sinless perfection. And that's what qualifies him as God with flesh on to be the one and only sacrifice for your sin. And so he died as if he committed every one of your sins. He died for your sin. Took God's judgment at the cross. Both of his hands pierced on the cross for your sin. He died. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And if Jesus really rose from the dead, everything's going to be all right. His promise to you is that if you will turn to him, trust him, he'll save you. He'll rescue you from your sin. And that's the invitation to you today. And maybe you're not ready for that. Maybe this is a new concept for you and you need more conversation. Then let's have that conversation today, soon. Or maybe now is the day and this is the time and you're tired of running and you're tired of brokenness and you're ready to be whole and you're ready to be healed. This is the time to call on Jesus to save you. And when you do, Micah's testimony will become your testimony. His last line was, my God will hear me. Your line will be, my God has heard me. Let this be the day of salvation for you. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your love to us. It's a love that's abundant. It's a love that's incredible. Even as we read about judgment, we hear this warning. We know that warning comes out of your compassion and love because we don't require this. We don't deserve it. You're not mandated to give the warning. You could just bring the judgment. And yet, who's a God like you, full of compassion, slow to anger, abounding in grace, 
There's no one else. So, Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness to us. And as we grieve sin, its impact on the world around us, its impact on our own lives, I'm grateful that we fall into the arms of a compassionate Savior. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that this morning our lives will be marked by holiness and by hope, and that you would lead us in both of those. And for friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, that this was the day that they would call on you, you would hear them and save them. Lord, may they hear your warning, and may they trust in your compassion and find their hope in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.